0: Hi, Nate, hey Tom,
1: what's the difference between Bigfoot and an accurate forecast?
0: I'm wondering if this is a NIST joke, seems like standard in there, but I couldn't quite. I, I don't know.
1: <laughs> Bigfoot has been sighted. <laughs>
0: This is wonderful! Welcome to the retort, everyone. Where we have a lot of citations relative to our peers, <laughs> and on that topic of academic success, we're going to kind of talk about grad school journeys. Probably break down into some ongoing rant on unsolicited life advice while you're here really are weird paths to getting into AI. I think, like, Tom, do you have a story to get us started? You mentioned you have something to share. I can start by saying I tried to get into Peter and Stuart. Well, this is the we'll we'll get back to this, but I tried to get into Peter and Stuart's group after I was admitted to Berkeley to do not AI. And they really kind of just said no. (laughs) Like, I want to look and see if I have any emails. They met with me and were very nice, but I feel like it was effectively just a cold no. It's just good to people to know that that has also happened to me. It's just like how it works.
1: Yeah, we kind of decided it was time for us to share a little bit about our journeys through grad school. Hopefully, as a guide to inform people a little bit earlier than us in the life journey to decide how they want to either choose between programs or whether to make the plunge at all or what what goes on once you make the plunge and yeah in my case i think i mentioned this on our first episode or very early on that i was already quite far into my phd before i made this complete 180 shift or at least felt like a 180 shift into the world of ai so background on that I originally started off in STEM. I was in what was called, it was called the Integrated Science Program at Northwestern, which was kind of this interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach to STEM at Northwestern amongst undergrads. Pretty quickly dropped out when I realized I was more interested in people than in deterministic physical systems, uh, but kept my friends that I made. It so up. you weren't a rationalist. I was, <laughs> yeah, we're going to get, we're going to come back to that. This was, this was before that culture. I think even existed. But when I look back on that cohort of people I was with, I was like, yeah. If ten years later, I, I, I we're going to come back to that culture. But this was mostly, it's interesting. What I recall from that, it was mostly physicists, mathematicians, who thought of themselves as kind of smarter than other fields because physics, they assumed was more elemental or fundamental than like chemistry or engineering. The joke was engineering was just applied physics and, or excuse me. The full joke was engineering is applied chemistry. Chemistry is applied physics. And so there was this kind of hierarchy of like how far along you were and like, who owes what to who intellectually. And looking back on it, it was very blue blood in a very kind of strange way. We'll also come back, I think, to that kind of culture. Anyway, I left that. I ended up double majoring in philosophy and sociology. And I then, after graduating, I got a Fulbright, lived in Denmark for a year, studying this guy, Kiergaard, who was a Danish theologian philosopher, kind of more popularly known as the father of existentialism. So I did that for a year, learned a little bit of Danish. It was hard. I didn't really learn very much of it. But I tried. I then went to Cambridge for a year studying political thought and intellectual history with a focus on the 18th century Prussian Enlightenment. And then I went to Berkeley where I joined the sociology PhD program and ended up, ended up getting an MA in Soch, where I was studying for my MA research why it is that different branches of theoretical physicists hate each other. <laughs> so especially string theorists versus competing approaches. So as I tell this story, you can maybe see some repeating themes of hierarchy and the hubris associated with intellectual hierarchy and why certain communities of people can really kind of start to hate each other just because of a different stylized understanding of how the world works at the most fundamental level. I don't really know how you jump to
0: that conclusion. I think most people won't know all the various philosophies that you just listed off. So like right. I, I still have a hard time getting past hearing existentialism, and my brain's like the science of having an existential crisis. So there are some <laughs> like there's <laughs> people that don't know what any of these terms mean.
1: I mean, existentialism is a it's it's not really anymore. It's still there's still authors that you would associate with this. So I mentioned Kierkegaard, Dostoevsky is kind of considered an existentialist novelist, Nietzsche is maybe a very famous philosopher. Then there's the French people, Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, Simone de Beauvoir, who she kind of twisted it into like what we would now call like second wave feminism. But basically existentialism is about the fact that we're all in the world being something ourselves before we have any sense of what that means. That's not to say that there isn't meaning out there or in us somewhere it's just that you first have to deal with your own existence before you can really come to terms either consciously or just in practice with what that means and then you can take different spins on it you can either be nihilist and be like that means there is no meaning the meaning of life is that there is no meaning you can make it like oh this is a call for me to become a particular kind of religious person, so it really becomes a call to convert in a kind of leap leap of faith kind of way, where there's no like rational deduction of God. It's something that you just existentially own.
0: I I don't think we need to do all of the it's it's interesting, but I think we need to get on the track of Um, you're, You're doing sociology, like, how did it get so dark that AI is the corner of the world that you turn to? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I was in this program. I got the MA and at the time I was there. So this would have been, well, I came to Berkeley in fall 2013. I had never lived in California before, you know, I grew up in the Midwest originally. So California was also kind of new to me, got my MA 2015 the next thing you do, you know, this is the PhD factory is you have to come up with a a thesis topic. You have to come up with the thing you're going to do your thesis on that department in particular had a reputation very much self-described as our PhDs write books. So whatever your thesis topic is, it's going to become a book. It's going to become published by Harvard or Princeton university press. And it's going to get all this attention. These things this. are so weird
0: as department norms. I was talking to someone who was, on the faculty, who was on the faculty market, and he was like, Yeah, like certain MIT, like applied math departments, like where some CS theory people go, have tenure rates like sub 70%. And I was like, What the heck? Like, yeah. this department just does this shit? And it's like, What? what? Like, these things are cultivated from very weird dynamics, which are definitely reflective of things that ways that people in AI create these weird, strange loops, especially in academia. Like, we
1: can't get away from that. There was a lot of, and in the social sciences, a lot of this is like disagreements over method. So the department I was in was very, at least outwardly known for being at the vanguard of like qualitative social science. So either doing ethnographies or interview based projects, getting in touch with what they would call the lived experience of actual people. So if you want to understand poverty in the Bay area, for example, you might spend six years living on the street in the Tenderloin as a way to understand it, you know, not just by like consulting the survey or the census or, you know, running linear regression on data sets. I mean, you might also do that, but the main data you would collect would be basically your own experience, making yourself kind of pragmatically homeless and then just writing about that and making that into a book, which one person ahead of me actually did that. He's now a professor, I think, at UCLA, the last I checked. But anyway, I was there. I was there at a time, this is in the immediate aftermath of like Alex AlexNet, looking back on it. Of course, I was ignorant of all this shit at the time. I knew nothing about machine learning, really, or even AI. It is interesting, looking back on it, when I was a kid, I think I might have been 14, I did read a book by Ray Kurzweil called The Age of Spiritual Machines, which had an enormous impact on me, just in, in an imaginative sense. So that book was basically like a statement of the singularity idea. The idea that yeah. you're going to get these... I think
0: like- It's the AlexNet thing is interesting because it's like everyone likes to say like they were around when AlexNet happens, but it took such a deep level of like understanding of computer vision and scaling and data sets and stuff to understand like why AlexNet was such a big deal. Like it's easy for us to read about at the time, but there's even analogs to to today. It's like yeah, AlexNet was probably harder to understand as a big deal than ChatGPT, but like you can still be early by being like oh yeah, this is a big leap in understanding why. So like Ale- like yeah. ImageNet essentially was like, the competition was for years stagnating because it was too hard compared to existing CV methods that were popular at the time. So like to the point where the competition was almost dying because it was way too hard because none of the existing methods could handle the size of data that ImageNet was. And then AlexNet came along and was native to big data sets which we all know about deep learning now but like in order to make that kind of connection like that's why it's like anyone that actually made the switch then because they understood that was probably pretty close to cb at the time Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. it's like a hard it's like a hard draw in where it it is a milestone for the field but if that was the thing that convinced you to join ai you are so ahead of the times and you deserve that kind of analysis or like the reward from doing that
1: to be clear, Alex Sned itself is not, I'll tell the story of what convinced me to join AI. It was not Alex Snedd yeah. itself. But I was, was just this reading kind this of,
0: book. I talked about it, so I was interested in it. Right there now.
1: was this context of this growing energy, which even, so Berkeley has this like strong north side, south side dynamic going on where like the north side of campus is much more STEM-y. The south side of campus is much more human-y, fluffy, social science-y. And then the other vector, it's like a two by two. So like north, south is STEM versus humanities. And then west, east is sort of how much money do you have? <laughs> so like as you go higher up the hill, you get more and more of that like really big government grant type stuff. I think once the Silicon Valley money started flowing in, that fell apart a little bit. But at the time, yeah, it was. there was this very firm topology of like how much money is available to you and like where. Yeah, it's
0: going. like where EECS was on the north. East side of campus, as well. Like yeah. Eek, the EECS buildings were that, which is like fits exactly into the.
1: So I, the- I was sort of graphed in the, I mean, approximately lower left quadrant of not very much money and very fluffy. And what it was, it was interesting, it kind of bubbled up for me. You know, I, I've told this story before, but I'll, I'll tell it just briefly now that I had to think of a thesis topic. Okay. So I had the MA and I was rereading. Moby Dick and there's a chapter in Moby Dick called The Battering Ram which is like it's late in the book so a a lot of that book is just the main character Ishmael kind of just meditating on whales just sort of thinking about them thinking about how they work and how they might not work and this is a chapter about the head of a sperm whale so a sperm whale like a third of a sperm whale's body is its head basically it has a giant fucking head and uh, Ishmael is sort of by this point, they've killed a few. And so he's thinking about the the anatomy and the geometry of the anatomy of a sperm whale. And he's like, what's interesting is like you try to imagine what it would be like, what it would feel like to be a sperm whale. So like imagine if your eyes were like moved to the sides of your head. So that you have no like coherent like depth perception frame of vision. And your jaw or your mouth was moved underneath your jaw, basically like much lower on your face. And your nose, like, gravitated upwards over your forehead to the very top of your skull. (laughs) And then imagine that that entire just mass senseless lump of flesh that's left of your face is, like, ten times bigger than it was previously. So your main way of moving and interacting with the world is this senseless mass of nothing. And yet that's the way you go after things, you butt heads with things, you've got all this spermaceti inside of you, which ha- has some kind of interesting effect on what that is, but we don't really understand what that is. And somehow that's what it means to be a whale. And I, I was reading that chapter and I thought to myself, that's what I want my thesis to be on. And just, I made the connection. I was like, that's what AI is. Is like, that's the mystery. Is like, if you had a fundamentally different mode of sensory input, and we're still trying to interact with the world in this qualitatively different way than humans do, how would you even articulate that experience? What is that experience? So for me, that was the bridge from my earlier fascination with human subjectivity, existentialism, the idea of your existence preceding a coherent sense of meaning. The bridge from that to this newfangled culture of AI, which was taking off. So I went to my department and... I have a
0: connection about the sperm whale analogy to AI. This is the nonsense
1: (laughs) creative or
0: special brain that I get to have, which is thinking about the fact that Transformer models are only actually like... This is a rough approximation, but a Transformer model could be like 30% attention and like 70% of it is still these MLPs that everyone has been talking about for so long and everyone's just obsessed with attention but it's like we can't get rid of these mlps which are most of the compute and most of the model parameters and it's like in my mind it's like if that's a third of the transformer it's like why are we still doing the same thing in ai and will we ever get away from it kind of like it's a third of this this whale that we are meditating on and meditate on why we need why do we still need half of our model to be mlps when attention is the thing that's doing most of the heavy lifting and like mm-hmm. like what does that mean that the model architectures and think like when we get people got popular about these state space models which are something different than attention like th- these feed forward networks are still there and they're still most of the parameters and it's just like that's not like, like it's been constant and it's not been answered so that's my brief random tangent
1: The mystery has only deepened, yeah, since then. Transformers
0: are our sperm whale.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Discuss, yeah. So this would have been late 2015 when this was going on for me. I went to the department. I went to the director of graduate studies at the department. I skipped the Moby Dick stuff, but I just said, I want to write a PhD thesis in sociology about AI. And he said, that's not sociology. And I said, "Well, what will, I
0: feel it, like sociology is the study of people and systems in a way, like the like it, the the social dynamics of people and understanding that." And I think it is, like AI fits into that very naturally.
1: So, especially
0: I, if you're hooby dooby about it, and like AI <laughs> are people, but we're not going to make that presumption.
1: I said a less coherent version of that in that meeting. I believe I said something like it will be pretty soon. So I wanna, I'm willing to get ahead of the curve, bite off a little bit of risk.
0: Speaking of AI being people, have you seen the plot of Go player ELO rankings over time since like AlphaGo happened? Like was no. a distribution? What? But essentially, it's like, there's a level, it's level for like 20 years, and then the AlphaGo moment happens, and the rate of ELO ratings has been, incru- we've been improving every year as we have access to these ELO things, which I think is like a sociological phenomenon. It's like, people are now unlocking, like you're unlocking capacity in that domain, but it could yeah. be in any domain by the existence of AlphaGo, and it's go it's incrementing by year, it wasn't just a step function, like it's still going up.
1: It makes sense, yeah, so... I'll get, I'll actually get to that in a moment as well. There's a connection there. So I basically said, let me be a little bit entrepreneurial and I think it'll be interesting. And the director of graduate studies said, that's not my problem. (laughs) And so I kind of went frankly into the sunken place for a little bit. There were like several months when I was looking back on it, functionally depressed. Let's just put it that way. I was sleeping for like upwards of 14 hours a day, my diet. Was kind of all over the place. I I hadn't really done anything wrong, and so they couldn't kick me out. But the place where all my energy was striving to go, there was just no home for it, and that persisted until April, twenty sixteen, when AlphaGo defeated Lee Sedol. I remember it very distinctly. I was up late at night because again, my kind of sleep schedule was all over the map. It was very late at night. My roommate who is Taiwanese American was like cursing in his room, like quite loudly. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he At ran. At this
0: time, I barely knew AI existed. I was in grad school. I was in undergrad, just like trying to row, getting good grades in row. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I was like, I was not even on the map yet.
1: <laughs> yeah. So he runs out of his room. He's very upset. He's very distressed, but he has a smile on his face. And I was like, what just happened? Like what's going on? He's like a computer just beat the world's best Go player, for the first time. And I remember I said, what's Go?
0: (laughs) That would be my answer as well. (laughs) I really want to play Go. I've never played yet. I think I would really enjoy it. I'd be, like, addicted. I think I would be, like, lying in bed visualizing the stones in the middle of the night level of addicted.
1: I picked it up during COVID a little bit. Yeah, it is an interesting game. So anyway, I was doubly ignorant of this happening and also even of what the game was. Anyway, I very quickly learned about it and I was like, oh, deep learning, I've heard of that before. What's this reinforcement learning thing that they also did with it? You know, and the reporting was shitty at the time. And so like, these were just buzzwords. I mean, they're they're still buzzwords, but at the time it was really just like, they just said, oh, this company called DeepMind, they've been using this thing called reinforcement learning and mapping it with deep learning. And what that means is that the computer can teach itself through self-play how to do all these things. And I remember just thinking to myself, like, fuck it, I'm just gonna do it. And I made a, I, it's, it's looking back on it, it's funny. I, I bought a plane ticket to Vienna that summer, and I stayed in a room in like a fancy 19th century like Viennese home for like six weeks where I did nothing but read essays by Turing Cover to cover the third edition of AI A Modern Approach by Russell and Norvig.
0: Holding up my mic. That's a great job. <laughs> and I your heart. I,
1: I, yep, I have the third
0: edition. People should like probably I, do more of that these days.
1: It was looking back on it, it felt and I it was kind of intentional, but it felt kinda of like a fever dream. I I would just be in my room, I would go for a long walk along the, the, the river in Vienna the Central River, like like an hour or two-hour long walk after having read all this stuff, and then write a, a very intense memo about what I was feeling and thinking after that. I did that pretty much every day. You still for, have like, these? Yeah, I do. So you I, just, do. I do. You still, still have them, yeah. of them. <laughs> I do still. So, we're, no, we're going to get to that. I still have them. And then in the evening, I would go to this, like, like beer hall on the banks of this river and just get totally wasted off of, like, whenever... <laughs> Like Pilsner's, they had, like, I'd get, I mean, really drunk. <laughs> and then, and then sometimes go back and then read some more. I remember watching a lot of Miyazaki movies when this was going on. That was like another pastime of mine. Anyway, I wrote these memos to myself, started sharing them with grad students who I knew who were kind of at the periphery of this world. Looking back on it, these were mostly people in the information school at Berkeley. And I, these are some weird, I mean, weird, things. The iSchool
0: at Berkeley, I still don't have a coherent worldview on. Like
1: they're always like
0: so close to being the perfect framing for solving crucial issues in AI, but always just being like one Lego piece wrong in like a crucial way. And I just can't figure it out.
1: It doesn't I mean that's a different that might be a different episode. It's a very (laughs) interesting place. I I did I had a lot of future interactions with them that they were very constructive. But anyway, I was sharing this memo with some friends who I had in the iSchool program. And they were like, this is pretty weird. <laughs> it's interesting, <laughs> but I wouldn't share with other people. And that sort of went in some interesting, we exchanged some messages. But then I was like, again, my attitude was very much, I just was like, fuck it. And so I sent it to Stuart Russell. <laughs> like some really, I mean, it, yeah, I'm toning down how odd this was. I sent it to Stuart Russell. I sent it to Anka Dragan. I can
0: imagine you said think this at like, 11:32 p.m. on a Friday and then Stuart responds 8 minutes later like enjoyed that exclamation <laughs> point that's what happened.
1: <laughs> so I'd have to look up actually what time of day it was it, it was a weird hour. I sent it to Stewart. I had never met Stewart before. I had heard of him. I'd literally only read his textbook. Hey, yeah, read a book. Maybe I'd watched some 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 videos of him on YouTube. I'm not I'm not even sure. But I emailed him and I was like I think he even he
0: wrote... I already or something. Like yeah. That.
1: I actually, I, I did not know yet. I don't know if it had come out yet by that point. But yeah, anyway, oh. that was impending. But I emailed him and I was like, look, this probably doesn't make any sense, but I'm still basically going to try and do this. And he wrote back, and it was something like 10 minutes later. And I remember his message was something like, in haste, waiting on a plane in Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand this document, but it is interesting. My advice to you, hang out with more computer scientists and then get back to me. So that's what I did. <laughs> I I was like, okay, I have my marching orders from Stu Russell now. He didn't say no. He didn't say yes, but he, he gave <laughs> me, there was a bit of a path there. Anka, I remember, was like, she didn't even bother. She maybe was like, I skimmed, I didn't know. But like... I'm teaching a class on algorithmic HRI in the fall. You should take this class. That's exactly
0: I was like, what I expect from the two of them. Like, yeah. you know, like Stuart has like some stewardly advice. And Anka's like, here's some more information that is maybe relevant, but like just maybe not, but also probably helpful in some strange way.
1: It And so I took her class. Uh, that was my first EECS class was that, I remember the room where it was and I remember, it was in Soda. And it was like, I mean, given the world I've already described. No windows, right?
0: No windows. Yeah, no windows. No. Yeah. It Soda was. Weird. Hall. That's all you need to know about Soda it Hall. It felt
1: I've I've brought up the story of Jonah and the whale previously on this podcast. And I, I felt like I was in the belly of the whale when I was when I was in that room. Of <laughs> like, okay. I was surrounded by and that and that looking back on it, that was my first exposure to rationalists. Was like that room it was like I think half the room was was that. I remember the first day of class. So funny. I remember Anka was like, "Just want to make sure we're on the same page. Please write down Bayes' theorem for memory." <laughs> and you're like, oh, "I've never heard of that." I was like, <laughs> "What the fuck?" And so I think I was like, "Oh yeah, it's like that probability thing." <laughs> and so I wrote, I wrote, I wrote something. I turned it in, and obviously, I was completely wrong about about what, what I wrote. But I think the key lesson again was that I just was like, "I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do it," and like, you know, the thing is. Academics have to go a lot out of their way to stop you from like doing something that you're kind of committed to doing.
0: Oh, no one's of, gonna stop you if it's an academic thing, especially without resources involved. If you have the willpower to do it, people are pro- just gonna slowly yeah. get more and more on board. Yeah,
1: over time. And I remember on I, 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 seen I got that back, so many times. I got back to campus in the fall. I made an Excel sheet of every professor on the campus who I thought might be wanting to join this mission I was on. I think there were something like 100 names. I emailed all of them. 95 said some version of no. Yeah, They either didn't respond, or they called me into their office to give me a dressing down, because I sent them all of this memo that I wrote.
0: Oh, I've got that. That's like what happened when I asked yeah. to Sergey and Peter. I think Sergey said something more normal over email and then Peter was like sure let's talk and the meeting was just like yeah no. <laughs>
1: I did not email P- I didn't know of Peter abiel at the time I I only they're not the right people, people, people for you and no they're they're not so I was I was it's interesting they're,
0: looking, they're both great but they're not the right frame of mind
1: it's interesting like, looking no. back on it like how there was already this kind of harmony between who I reached out to and who eventually made sense. But anyway, like 95 said some version of no, and then five said, maybe let's talk. And then that ended up being my thesis committee was like mm-hmm. those five people. And so I, I remember in one of these meetings with the rando, I was like, my department's already said no, but I'm going to do this. So what did you, I-
0: hound their office hours? I remember I, doing this when I was early in grad school. I would like look at where yeah. people's office hours are, and I'd be like, "Early in the semester, no one's going to go. I'm just going to go try to snag research opportunities yeah. as a grad student." No, I was that's like, I'm just going to show up. Like the amount of times I showed up to Claire Tomlin's office hours, just because <laughs> she was like very respectful to me and would help me with various things, was like very high. <laughs> and also to get signatures or anything.
1: Claire would have been great. I didn't know of Claire yet. I found out about her later, but she she would have been on the roster of people for me. But yeah, I I was crashing. I knew if I crashed office hours in like late August that nobody else would be there. And so I just got in early and just kept coming back every week. Do people Um, still hustle like this?
0: Do people go to office hours anymore? They probably only go if you give them answers.
1: Yeah, that's a good (laughs) question. But I was definitely doing it. And then it turned, so I was in one of these meetings and this guy said like, well, I'm really not supposed to tell you this or anybody else this. But technically at Berkeley, you're allowed to design your own degree. You're allowed to create your own PhD program. What
0: about Berkeley means that he wasn't supposed to tell you this?
1: Well, I think it's just that if, it's funny now that I'm like making this official on this podcast, like I don't know if like a, a, a branch of people are gonna find out, but like it is, it's a policy that not many universities let you do. I think in Berkeley's case, I mean, really, honestly, it's just bureaucratically impressive. They do let you do it at all, but they don't advertise it because the requirements well, are be pretty so
0: messy. It, it would be so messy. mess. So many people had failed through that process.
1: At least at the time you had to have spent at least, I want to say at least four semesters in a PhD program. So it's not, like you could go to Berkeley and like planning to do this you really had you almost had to fuck up as the price of entry (laughs) you had to like basically get an ma or some kind of master's degree already and then be like this isn't working but also i'm here and i'm still in principle motivated and i had to like personally like convince the dean so like i ended up this is the way it works was like technically i had to invent a department So it's not just that I had my own PhD. It's like there was a department at Berkeley called Machine Ethics and Epistemology for like, like the time that I was. Yes, yeah, so my old my old joke that everyone liked was that my department was struggling with diversity requirements that we, we were like the least diverse <laughs> department on the Berkeley campus, and that we had trouble with retention and all sorts of things like that. But yeah, so I had to like renegotiate and find funding. I mean everything. But I when I learned about Chai, when I learned about the Center for Human Compatible AI, I was like, okay, that's gonna be where I can do this. If I can just get this approved and then get into that lab, that's all I need in order to pull this off. So I still, I think I tried to, I did try and crash Stewart's office hours, but I couldn't find him or he was very inaccessible. If you're not already in the system, he's very hard to get a hold of. And so I just sort of pursued this and mashed at it and got Anka and four other people to like sign on I remember Anka it was funny there was oh yeah I should tell this story there was a professor
0: we should have done my story first because yours is the way more interesting (laughs) yeah
1: I'm sorry I'm just kind of I'm just kind of running with this now okay there was a there was a CS professor I'm just reminding myself the name oh yeah Christos Papa Dimitriou did you ever interact with this person okay so like I I wanted to ask Anka out, (laughs) so to speak, but I just couldn't, somehow just doing it in person, I just hadn't found the courage to do it. And so I randomly went to this guy, Papa Dimitriou's office hours, and I was like, I sort of said to him, I was like, I want to ask Anka out, but I just don't, it's just so weird that I would do that because she knows that I'm not a computer scientist. I don't even know Bayes' theorem. (laughs) And he was like, but you want to do this. And I was like, yeah, I have to do this. And he was like, you've just, you just got to do it. You've got to find inside of yourself that spark. And you just got to show it to her and be like, I need you to join this team. And so that was the permission I needed. And so I ran from his office hours to to Anka's. And she just sort of looked at me and she was like, yeah, you don't really belong here. And I was like, yeah, not going to fight you on that one. No, no, not new to me. Man. <laughs> not new
0: to me, girl. Like, uh, I've been dealing with this for years. <laughs>
1: and I was like, you know, I'm taking your class. I'm really learning a lot. I think it's interesting. I have this pretty diverse background that I think could help a lot with, like, alignment. Because I think I learned the word alignment by that point. And I was like, I Oh, really I'll drop
0: you. this keyword on her. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And she was like, I remember specifically, I was like, I want you to be on the committee. And she was like, I remember her wanting it's i don't i mean it's she like, wanted to say no <laughs> she wanted to she did she wanted to yeah, say I no think, but
0: i know exactly it's so funny yeah. i can picture her in this kind of like uncle like kind of like fidget a little bit like look side to side yeah.
1: but i think a part of her was yeah morbidly curious and just, As, yeah like, oh
0: she's she's such a curious person yeah she's she's, yeah. she's doing really well now
1: yeah off so google right yeah, that's a whole new thing for, for Anka, too. At the time, she was just a roboticist, and she presented herself kind of exclusively just as, like, almost a kind of garden-variety roboticist. It was kind of interesting. That class is interesting for all other, other sorts of reasons. Anyway, she joined the team. It did get approved. I remember very distinctly that was a very emotional process for me when I finally got the notice from Berkeley that I was going to be allowed to do this. And I didn't meet Stuart until that January. So January 2017 was when... I think I finally emailed him and I was like, okay, I I followed your advice, (laughs) Stuart. Four months ago, (laughs) he said,
0: I know Bayes' theorem now. (laughs) I know Bayes'
1: theorem now. I've hung out with computer scientists and I think what I'm saying still doesn't make sense, but for reasons that are like possibly research questions for your lab. And he was like, okay, we can meet. And so then we met and I sort of said, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to figure out alignment, try to do all this shit. I don't think you know how to do that. And he was like, you know, Stuart is not often told things like that. <laughs> It'll be yeah, No, but it, I've been in
0: the room with him a lot of times. People will suck up to him.
1: Big time. I, I was not, I, w- I was, I was, uh, but I was sort of like, yeah, I, I think that this is like putting it mildly. This is an open like space of possibility. I have a unique set of background skills that could be Wait, useful you- here. <laughs>
0: You gotta say it differently. Yeah. I, <laughs> I've got a unique set unique of set skills of skill. yeah, but, that'll make it me a nightmare <laughs> for people like you. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, and I think I sort of said uh, something like, Yeah, if you let me let me join the lab as like the resident, you know, humanist social scientist who's also gonna be like ready to collaborate with whatever the fuck. And he was like, Okay. Like, that was it. It wasn't even really a conversation. I think Stuart felt, in a peculiar sort of way, more respected by virtue of somebody with my background having kind of twisted my whole career to just be able to be a part of this enterprise. Like, I didn't do it for him. I did it for me. But I did it because I felt these questions were so interesting and important that they were Have
0: weren't. you ever talked with the band of Askel at length?
1: No, we met briefly at fact last
0: I, like I can't help but draw analogies cuz like mm. she's it's obviously you're not doing as technical of work but she was a philosopher and then she's ended up yeah. making like core technical contributions of, like making constitutional AI. So she was like the one like she was like doing these technical experiments and had the original idea that turned into CAI from talking to her and it's like that's a little different you didn't end up on the technical side. But there aren't many that many people in my island of misfit toys. That's what I've always called me and my grad school friends of the all the RL people that didn't come from CS backgrounds. Know, like, <laughs> that philosophy right. is a less normal one. Hugging Face is like half physicists.
1: Yeah, because ask cool. physicists at, are everywhere. She was at NYU, right? For her PhD, I don't even I know. So NYU is like a very storied, especially like analytic philosophy. Pro- I mean, it's like, like the top ranked philosophy program. Oh, right. Yeah, and all that all that jazz. No, I've never spoken to you about this stuff. That would be kind of interesting. But no, so I mean Stuart was pretty passive in the meeting, kind of remarkable. And I remember it later became clear. This is I think now it's common knowledge, so I'm comfortable more or less sharing this, that Stuart and a lot of other people who became there are these stories. It's part of the lore now of like the times when professors came out to each other as worried about X risk. AI safety type stuff. So my understanding is that for many months, if not years, a certain cohort of prominent professors in EECS and other universities were kind of secretly worried about alignment, but were just not talking to each other. And over the course of 2016, 2017, they just had these confessionary moments to each other where they were like, it, the real problem is what if we succeed, not what if we keep failing? And so there was this context where Stuart... I think it's had, the right thing for people
0: to do, not even yeah. just in a safety context. It's just like, I think academia breeds people that are not thinking about the biggest case scenario too much. It's like, I, like I, like it's something I'm spending a lot of time trying to cultivate the like political will for. It's like, our team is not trying to get two papers a year unreleasing adapted models it's like we just want to do all of it and it's like for whatever reason like academia rewards like i mean it does reward narrow and fast because it's like you get one experiment platform running you could run four papers on that and keep incrementing because you don't have to do the setup work every time but like the setup work is the work now in ai it's like you need to build the tool to do things and it's just Hard for people yeah. to think about, and I'm sure people that are applied to grad school go into this because it's just like hard to differentiate. My my manager at AI2, Hannah, like had oh, I struggle with her last name, but she got like 400 applicants for her U lab at UW, and she wants to hire a couple grad students. It's like like you don't stand out by having like mm-hmm. there's going to be a full distribution of how many papers people have from like like it's going to be some bell curve. And you're not going to stand out by being four standard deviations above the mean on how many papers you have. It's like you, you have to have something else. And in that context, it's hard in academia. Or you just go somewhere else and try to find your journey, which is the things so that I feel like, yeah. say I, I, I think I probably over recommend to people, but it breeds this kind of authentic energy. They're like I've just been doing this stuff for years. <laughs> just keep doing stuff and it's okay. it's mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. this single track mindset, which is very fun to work with people in that
1: way. There's such a pressure in grad school. I mean academia as a whole, but grad school is really a pressure cooker for it to specialize and to go into your box and just double down on the box. And different fields, different departments have different boxes and different ways of defining what goes in the box and what doesn't go in the box. But I think what was interesting about this moment was there was this confessionary impulse amongst a certain contingent of prominent CS people to be like, we actually care about society. We actually care about values and modeling them correctly because we might accidentally build something that could fuck up everything. And my understanding is without naming names or keeping this a little bit of a high level that people made overtures to the other fields that were the ones that were also doing social science and humanities and stuff like that to be like, we want this to be a group effort. We want this to be something that there can be a kind of meaningful interdisciplinary engagement on. And from one of what was explained to me and from what to some degree I've also experienced the response was almost universally negative. <laughs> Basically, we will not help you. This is not your business. You are a neoliberal technocrat who just wants to simulate a reality you can control and not actually build anything that would be it, in touch with the experiences of vulnerable populations.
0: Is this the early the signs of like this safety ethics thing? That seems back, very similar to what we have
1: arrived at. Looking back on it, I would say so. Yes. So I it's would like say. right
0: now, the like ethics group is essentially saying people don't want to make the hard effort to build tools and wrecking with the values that are going into their tools. is a the thing. They don't want to build new tools to deal with the problems they meet, and they don't want to do the hard introspection to understand their flaws. So that is like very similar <laughs> to what you have mm-hmm. said. But like yeah. what is what transforms well, the field from saying no to like becoming this AI ethics field is my like what is the origins of AI ethics in the way that we know it now is a kind of interesting question. I think AI safety we can kind of see from the story that you've told.
1: Yeah, and I mean in my case, I nate so I named it machine ethics and epistemology before any of this AI ethics stuff was like thing i'm not saying that that like i saw where this was going i'm actually making the opposite point which is i was just like i'm interested in the subjectivity of machines i'm interested in how that differs from people how it is it's going to also then transform the experiences of people which itself is going to transform the experiences of the machines what do i call that and so i just named it something that seemed like a reasonably... I guess, systematic statement of that space, but also something that was remotely academically kind of permissible. <laughs> so I just picked two of the main branches of philosophy and just put the word machine in front of it.
0: And what does epistemology, epistemology actually mean?
1: It just means how you know what you know. Like, you know things, but how do you know that you know those things and why do you know them? and what? what well, is it the, seems
0: like a pretty natural pairing. I think to do ethics well, you have to do some epistemology yeah I don't have to but i i think that it's good to to understand where your values come from
1: for for aristotle they were just different virtues so the terms come from well at least episteme and that comes from aristotle so the word episteme in greek it, it referred to a particular kind of knowledge like representational knowledge theoretical knowledge knowledge of like basically what even they would call like data whereas ethics Aristotle thought of it more as in terms of like practical behaviors and kind of doing the right thing in particular situations. So these were considered distinct, but kind of parallel to each other in terms of different, like different intellectual virtues, because they both require judgment. Do you think the
0: epistemology is reflected in common practices in AI these days? It's at such a different scale that it's like, I don't know if you can draw a straight line to it.
1: I mean, rationalists, seem to try to act like they're the same thing right that the, the way in which you do the right thing is by getting more information such that you would be able to do the right thing this is this kind of like metanormativist frame of like if you had enough if you had infinite data. a lot
0: of people don't feel that way of, <laughs> like yes, i think a lot that's people... how almost every normal person does not agree with rationalists which is that there are things to being human that are not in the data and that is like probably causes most of the strife and a lot of the strife in AI, which is like, you're talking to, you have different base
1: assumptions. It's assumptions. That's right. And whether or not you agree with certain assumptions, they can't always be given. They can't always be leveraged in all contexts simultaneously. Right. And, but this was a mystery for me, my PhD. So a lot of the work I did in my PhD was about because, again, once I joined Chai, once I joined this culture, I was like, what's what's less wrong? What is it? Why do people keep talking about this? <laughs> and The way that I was
0: introduced to less wrong is funny because my brother was early on it. Yeah. And he was like, oh, this is a cool way of thinking. It's like teaches you about your human biases. But he bailed long before it got real weird. weird. It was like the intro. When it was just these kind of like, what do they call it? Sequences. It was like the first major sequence, which is all about like... It's like the book Predictably Irrational. I think. I think it's like a more nerdy writing of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what Less Wrong originated as. <laughs> if you look at it today, and it's like shitposting AI safety results. It's like archive for AI safety plus other stuff.
1: <laughs> archive for AI safety is a good way to describe it. Yeah. And, and then I,
0: would, I'm fine yeah. with not reading Less Wrong. I haven't read a post on Less Wrong it maybe since like the Wild Luigi effect. <laughs> <laughs> which is like all that was that wasn't that, wasn't that long ago. yeah I know but, but yeah. that was like the one only thing I ever read
1: <laughs> I did eventually one one badge of honor for me was that I did end up writing a less wrong post and getting it, and it got some attention I was quite proud of it still still on there of course because they don't it takes a lot for them to remove things but yeah so you can count me along with the basilisk as like contributors to the less wrong space but yeah I also hadn't heard of like effective altruism before. So, like, for a while, I was thinking of doing an ethnography just within, like, AS safety. I was like, this is real fucking weird. <laughs> and somebody needs to tell this story. And so for a couple years, even after doing this whole process, I still ended up basically almost doing a straight-up sociology ethnography of that community. Until eventually, I, I just, it kind of broke through to me that what, the questions that were being asked and the methods that were being mobilized to answer the questions were actually so profound that the much more interesting and compassionate thing for me to do was to kind of help them, not just help them on their terms, but almost just in a kind of, again, like in a compassionate way, in a kind of spiritual way, to kind of be with this group of people as they try and prevent The collapse of human civilization due to AI. It seemed very interesting to me. I mean, the more I learned about it, the more I was never, frankly, convinced by many of the thought experiments, but I could sense a vitality in the questioning that seemed quite rare, frankly, by academic standards. I mean, they're passionate motherfucker people. And I think still, you have to
0: respect a lot of these people so much. Like, they're doing hard things, and they approach it with the passion that I can't help but respect, even though I have different views. It's like they're do- they're taking the hard path in that way. Like, passion is always or, like they're not messing around with how they approach their life. Like they like all the silly like some of the things they do, I definitely find silly. Like how they'll figure out how to appropriate their time and money and stuff to do these things. Like they're like but like. Well, some of that also there, hasn't the, aged very well
1: either. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. At the time, it seemed mostly just kind of interesting to me. And then I think also my training as a historian, I was like, okay, so this really isn't that different than like the Pythagoreans in ancient Greece who believed that numbers were sacred and like literally worshipped geometry. That was their religion. That was, which makes sense. Like, when you think about it? The idea that you could actually objectively describe the reason a song was beautiful, by denoting the ratios of the notes in relation to each other on like a string instrument, like blew people's minds in ancient Greece. And Pythagoras just, he did it in an inarguable way. And you see that same just kind of mind expanding possibility in 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 that community today. But then you can look at other periods of history too. Like you get these moments in, maybe especially in Western history, where a new kind of generation of people just fanatically falls in love with a new direction to think just just I, the just thinking it almost doesn't matter what the object is, is. is, is,
0: is stephen Strogat's book like the history of calculus i think it's infinite powers very great read on like what calculus meant and like really it really originated on like having models of the world and all of this stuff and tried to have a math to describe that It probably feels like it's a different approach, but great book and the cultural movement we're in and AI will have similar things written about it in in 200 years. Like I I do, I do feel confident saying that, which is why i just appreciate being a part of it at all. It's like, okay, we're just along for the ride. (laughs) Like we're trying to steer it. We're trying to make small nudges in what is some sort of direction here.
1: That was a lot of it for me, is that I kind of realized that there was a, a spirit of humility that it could bring, because I just, I did sense that it was just an honor to kind of be on the ground floor of this new enterprise. And so beyond the kind of ethical critique of like, well, what if they don't do it right? Or what if they leave stuff out? Or these people are really fucking weird. How can you trust them to do this? Yeah.
0: It's a, it's a very prevailing mo- emotion for me right now is that like feeling happy to be here which I don't think is the case among people I talk to. It's more of a craving to be there, which is like people are just like eager to get into AI for the sake of AI which is like obviously it's a little, they might be once they're here but there's not that much general awe at the low level I think. Maybe some organizations cultivate a culture more of that than others. But at least among the academics, it's hard to get that perspective.
1: If I were to sum it up, because this was actually, a while. I mean, this was seven years ago now, you know, January 24, this was January 17 is when I finally had that meeting with Stewart. I guess, is the capstone of my entry to that world, this world. If I look back on it, yeah, I think it's important in grad school that you are driven by things that make you feel happy to be there, rather than things that fill a hole for you, which I think is where that kind of sense of craving comes from. Yeah. Like, I sort of... There's maybe some sense of self-worth that you don't really feel like you can fully have until you have some imagined credential or experience or... How would you put it? You're in the tail of the tail of the tail of the distribution of... Whatever the hell, yeah. I mean, because that's not that's not an authentic way to go about things, and it is the cliche does prove true that when you approach topics that you care about authentically, it tends to draw out the best in you, and you tend yeah. to do better as a result.
0: And it doesn't need to be that this was your life's calling. Like, I don't think I was long term like, oh, AI is my life calling, but I have a way of doing it that is very authentic and it's entertaining. Which, that's worth trying. I think that also finding this is very hard. It's a combination of circumstances and, like, be, having a supportive friend group and being able yeah. to zoom out and look at what you're working on. It's not easy to show up to grad school and be like, how am I going to like? There's just so much swirling on. You don't know what to latch on to. So I think especially, like, it's just good to be supportive of grad students. And I do think it's a good ideal to aim for. It's like answer the question of like what do you want to do with your career? Like I would say like at this point just like influence the direction of AI developments for the better. And like I talk about open it's just like trying to normalize the landscape yeah. in the direction that I deem to be better. And it's that's kind of such a different. And it's like okay, it's it takes a while to arrive at that like the bad blog posts I used to write four years ago. And like some of those like not good blog posts are how we ended up reconnecting and stuff like that. It's like, I wasn't a plan
1: there. (laughs) It's important to feed in to what's possible and and worry, I think, less about being really good at any moment than just, because yeah, I mean, what is the lesson from the journey that I've narrated on this episode? It's, I just decided I was going to do it and that I just was gonna do whatever it took to do it. And what that meant was that any failure wasn't really a failure. It was just a step in the journey. And I just didn't internalize it the way that you, I might have otherwise if I was just chasing some credential of like, oh, I'm not gonna get to that arbitrary thing I decided was the reality that mattered. So I should just stop now. But yeah, that journey is different for everybody. And so I hope that people Give themselves permission to explore and take whatever spiritual trip to Vienna <laughs> lies in what, store. Like,
0: do you just decide this is what you needed to do? Or is this like some work thing somehow got you there?
1: It's interesting. I do also have Austrian heritage. My great-grandfather was Austrian, and he escaped the uh, the austro hungarian Empire, tried to conscript him, and he killed his commanding officer, supposedly, and he... He was like, I need to get the fuck out of here. (laughs) And so he immigrated by cover of night to Ohio and became a brewer. So there was a kind of personal connection, kind of intergenerational connection, I think, there that I was maybe tapping into as well. I think that's a good place to stop. Yeah. Any final remarks?
0: No, it's a good story. It is. I think people find their own way. The context of this is that people are doing interviews for grad school right now and like visit days comes up and people are reviewing applicants. So at least in my circles, it's making a lot of noise, but I tend to ignore these things. Like I'm not, good, like, I'm totally out of sync with that stuff, which is kind of funny being in an organization that's so driven by academic deadlines and stuff. I'm like, I don't know where the next deadline is. Some grad student's going to have to tell me. I'm only like, just going to post it on archive and move on.
1: I've also really checked out. I like. I used to care so much about that shit. I, I don't even know. Like, I wouldn't even care if I could.
0: Space <laughs> to... Yeah, okay. The, ty- the way to end... You can tell me if I should go to ICML in Vienna. I'm starting to get invited to some stuff. I don't know if I want to do the effort to go to Europe. I've got too many things that I want to try to actually make. And I don't want to deal with the jet lag. But it is cool. I've never been to Vienna. If people want to get in touch, pour their hearts out about stories that we that you want to say, or if you want to ask us questions, you can email us. We're ready to explain the world of AI to all of you. Yeah. we. Thanks want, for listening. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we want emails. Tell us your stories and maybe we'll do a segment on your questions down the road.
0: <laughs> yeah. So thanks for listening. We'll catch you guys soon.
1: Bye for now.